a few years back, my family was uh, enjoying their time together. I was away at a conference, and they were, you know, hanging out in the house. They heard this massive sound, and uh, th- this humongous uh, tree that was in our backyard came down. This unbelievable windstorm was blowing through. Susan's like, go in the basement. The kids are go run down to the basement. I get this text while I'm away that says, I think a tree fell on the house. That's, a, that's an alarming text to get when you're out of the province. And so the kids uh, t- told me that, um, that after the storm had subsided and everything, that neighbors and people who were just happened to be walking by, they all started walking into our backyard to just look at it because it was such an enormous tree. And it was a weird feeling for them. They're like, um, we, we don't really know you, but welcome to our backyard. As people just kind of walked off the street and were like, oh, let's check out this massive tree that went over. And uh, it was just this uh, massive, massive spectacle. And not only our tree, but our neighbor's tree. And then if you go for a walk in Bechtel Park across the road, a number of trees came down. There's this huge blast of wind went in and just totally changed the landscape. Never the same. Today is Pentecost Sunday where there's this moment in church history, moment in human history, where God comes like a, like a blast of wind that forever changes the landscape in Jerusalem, forever changes the landscape in the Greco-Roman world, and it ultimately forever changed the landscape of every nation on earth to the point where today now Christianity, global, cross-cultural, Every corner of the earth is people who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have had their eyes and hearts opened and come to faith in the saving God through Jesus Christ. The landscape of the globe has never been the same. And our text for this morning is Acts chapter 2. And it records how when the Holy Spirit came, like a blast of wind, and changed the landscape, that the gospel went global. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came the sound from heaven like a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them dispersed tongues like fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the ability. And there were devout men dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together. They were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And then they were amazed and they marveled and they said to one another, look at these men who speak. Are they not Galileans? How is it that we're hearing in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Persia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya and adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them all speaking in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. So they were, they were amazed, they were perplexed, and they said to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they're drunk. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, he raised his voice and he said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour in the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass that in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. 
Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon into blood. And before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, you shall see these things and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God, to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did to him, through him in your midst. As yourselves also know, him being delivered and being determined purpose and, of the purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and you've crucified him and you've put him to death, who God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that Jesus could be held by it. For David says this concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before my face. For he is at my right hand, that I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You've made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried... And his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn an oath to him before his descendants according to the flesh, that he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. And David, foreseeing this, he spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And this God, this Jesus, God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this on which you now see and you now hear. For David did not ascend to the heavens. He says of himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel assuredly know that God has made this Jesus, who you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children and to all who are far off, as many as our Lord God will call. And with many other words like this, Peter testified and he exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this crooked generation. And then those who gladly received the word, they were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. And then fear came upon every soul, as many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. And now all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and their goods, and they divided them amongst themselves to anyone who had need. And so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This is God's word. Now, God has been calling his people to himself by grace since Genesis. You see that vividly in Abraham, constantly calling to himself. And here in Pentecost... We don't find the beginning of the gathering of God's people, but it's totally unique because for the first time, God comes to dwell with empowering presence in his people by the Holy Spirit. God the Father sent the Son, and God the Son sent the Spirit. 
And the Holy Spirit is not a mystical energy force. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is the third member of that trinity. And one of the things you notice about Pentecost as this story unfolds, this account unfolds, is that it's not a, it's not a personal experience. It's a public experience. They do experience something in a personal way. But it's not a private meeting. It's a, it's a public event. It changes the landscape of the entire world, starting in Jerusalem. It's unbelievable. Not a private church event, a citywide missional event. And it causes the gospel to go global. And when you consider who is in that upper room, you have the 12 apostles, who are, of course, the most trained, ordained, qualified, educated folks who had walked with Christ for three years. But then you've also got lots of other men and women in that room who were not trained and had not walked in the same manner as, as the apostles were and had not walked with Jesus as closely as the apostles, but all of them received the Holy Spirit. All of them go out publicly into the city. All of them are declaring the goodness of the gospel and, uh, and men and women are coming to faith in Christ. It's, in, it's amazing. There's a tremendous healing of the nations here. As you see, all of the nations of the world represented, and I read that long list, We'll get to that, the significance of that a little bit later. But uh, you, all of these nations that are present, there's a tremendous healing going on here. Some of you who have been in church for a while, you may remember that in Genesis 11, there's an account of a, a Tower of Babel. For those of you who are new to the Bible, essentially the people were building a monument to themselves, a monument to their own ego in Genesis 11. And what God did uh, was he... Um, essentially came and he brought divisiveness in the people and he scattered them through the diversity of language. But here now, at Pentecost, God pours out his spirit and he creates harmony to, to, amongst all the people through, a, through the diversity of language. All these diverse people groups that were once scattered in disunity because of their sin can now be gathered together in unity around the gospel of God's grace for us in Jesus Christ. And so... When we, look, when we consider the outpouring of the Holy Spirit here in, uh, in Acts chapter 2, this is consistent as the Holy Spirit is God with us. It is consistent with God's heart continually through the scriptures to be God with us. In the, in the creation, you see God with us. And then sin in the garden in Genesis 3, it separates God from us. But then throughout all of history, you're continually seeing God moving graciously so he can be God with us. In the wilderness, you see God, uh, his presence in the Ark of the Old Covenant, surrounded by the 12 tribes. Again, God with us. And then in the manger, you see the Christ child come, and again, it's a sign. God with us. And then Jesus walks surrounded by his 12 disciples in the same way that the presence of God walked surrounded by the 12 tribes. And again, it's a picture of God with us. And now here at Pentecost, we see it again. And if you skip to the end of the book to see how it all ends in Revelations 21, it's God with us. He restores all things and he restores us to enjoy it. God with us. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit was, was, was poured out because it's, it showcases the heart of God for his people and for all people. And when the Spirit was poured out, in verse 12, the crowd asked a question. If you look at verse 12, they say, what does this mean? So we're going to ask that same question this morning. What does this mean? And we're going to really... It means a lot of things, but this morning we'll just kind of focus on three of them. And the first, the first thing it means is that the answer to the brokenness of humanity is not within us. It's beyond us. That's the first thing that it means. 
think of it this way. When you look at verse 2, it says that the Spirit came like wind, and the text says the Spirit came from heaven. The text does not say that the Spirit came from within. That's, that's on a collision course. That's very offensive because culturally today, the, the conversation is that our problems are outside us and the solutions are inside us. But what this text gives us is, no, actually, what we most need, what humanity most needs, what we need is this God who is outside us, who in grace comes to us, to fill us. We can't look inside us and, and, and find the solutions. And so sin is why, even though this is a, again, it's, on a, it's offensive to talk this way, it's on a collision course with the prevailing idea of our culture. But sin is why this world is paradoxical. Sin is why this world is, it's beautiful and it's horrifying. There's glorious things to be celebrated every day. You don't have to look hard to find beauty in this world. It's glorious. And it's terrible. It'll make you cry. It'll make you angry. Both of those things are true. Both of those things have always been true. And both of those things are continue, will continue to be true because we will not save ourselves. Contrary to popular you know, belief. We need something outside us. And the Spirit comes like a rushing wind from outside, from heaven, and comes to us. And, uh, you know, uh, back in the Reformation, um, Luther had this phrase. He used to say, man, the, the condition of humankind is in, in curvatus se, which means man curved inward on himself. And really what we, what we see in the world as a result of sin is that very thing. You know, in this room, there is a lot of professionals that work with children. Your teachers, um, your educators. You, some of you are uh, professionals in child development or, or uh, working in uh, and daycare facilities, we've got a number of you that understand the world of early child development. And I've talked with many of you, and you'll, when you talk about working with very small children, let's take the daycare, for example, if you are a professional working in a daycare, you'll use words to describe it, like it's, it's exciting work, it's rewarding work, it's enjoyable work, I love it. You'll use all sorts of things to describe it. But you know what nobody ever says about a daycare? It's heaven on earth. Oh, to be around innocence all day. Everybody should do what I do because I'm around blissful innocence. I mean, these young innocent children born in innocence, it's just nothing but happiness and joy. Nobody has ever described a a daycare. A daycare. I dare you to work at the daycare. (laughs) Nobody has ever described a daycare as heaven on earth because it's not. Because the reason little Timmy is jamming a crayon in Susie's ear is because little Timmy needs to learn a number of things like being loving and generous and sharing. It's in us. The demon is in us. And the solution is outside us, Christ our Savior, who comes to us in grace. And here, the Holy Spirit comes rushing to do something profound, unlike anything in in, uh, church history where our God is not simply with us in an external way, but he comes to us and then he fills us in a glorious and internal way. So we'll speak to that. But so some of you may think, well, that was funny and that's a juvenile example. You talk about the daycare, haha, it's a good joke. Well, there's another guy who was, in, who was a pretty smart guy. His name's Plato. hate to drag Plato into this, but I got to drag Plato into this. Because the moment you get off the, the God track, you're onto political philosophy because political philosophy is man's answer to uh, life apart from God. And that, is, that, is the, that is the core uh, foundation, cornerstone of political science. And so when you read Plato and you read his Republic, one of the things that he says as he's kind of contemplating trying to create a city of justice apart from God or the gods 
is in about book three, he, turned, uh, he writes that Socrates turns to this young philosopher Glaucon and he realizes that as he's endeavoring to do the, go down this track of, of uh, creating essentially a utopia uh, through uh, pl- political civility, he turns to Glaucon and he says, I fear that this argument may lead us to prayer. And then by the time you get to book 10, that's exactly where, where, where this thing goes, is that at the end of the Republic, spoiler alert for those of you who are planning on reading it, but anyways, um, he gets to the end and he doesn't have answers. He gets to the end and he says, we need a new poetry. What does he mean by that? Well, po- poets are those that believe in the gods and the philosophers are those that reject the gods. And essentially in the end, he's like, we, we got to reject these Greek gods because they're all crazy. They're throwing lightning bolts at each other. But also we can't save ourselves. I just wrote 10 books on how we can't do it. We need a new poetry. And that's how it ends. And so Plato's Republic, of course, is not uh, divinely inspired. It's not the scriptures. But it was providential because it prepared the Greco-Roman world to believe this gospel. That they couldn't save themselves. That they needed the Holy Spirit to come like wind and fire. Out, out something outside us. A God outside us. More transcendent to us to come to save us and to fill us. In this rich and glorious and, and life-changing way. Um, last thing I'll say about, about this need... Uh, and maybe this will be helpful for those of you who are here this morning visiting, uh, who are considering Christian faith, but you've, you're grappling with it, wrestling with it. Maybe this will be helpful. Um, the reason why we need God. Because the moment that you live your life according to a narrative that says there's no God, and everybody's living according to narratives, um, that, you know, if you're a professional in marketing, you understand this. You're trying to invite people to see themselves in a narrative because we live our life according to narratives. So if, you're on the, if you get off the God narrative and you're like, no, there's no God narrative, then what you're left is the dilemma of all of the rest of us having to be little gods and save the world ourselves. And if you check your news feed, you'll notice it's not going that great. And Arthur Leff, who's a professor of law, well, he used to be anyways, at Yale University, he wrote a paper in 1979 called Unspeakable Ethics. And here's what he says. Uh... This was published uh, at the university. In the absence of God, each ethical and legal system will be differentiated by the answer it chooses to give on key questions. Who among us is able to declare law that it ought to be obeyed? Stated that baldly, the question is so intellectually unsettling that one should expect to find a noticeable number of legal and ethical thinkers trying not to come to grips with it. Because either God exists or he doesn't, but if he doesn't, then nothing and no one else can take his place. And then Leff concluded his, his essay in this shocking way. He said this, As things are now, 1979, everything is up for grabs. Nevertheless, napalming babies is bad, starving the poor is wicked, buying and selling each other is depraved. There is such a thing as good and evil, but altogether now, says who? God help us. We need a God outside us to come to save us, to re- rescue and to renew us. Which leads to the second thing, that we can consider that this means, what does this, what does Pentecost mean? It means that the Spirit opens our eyes to see the grace of God and then live in the empowerment and enjoyment as children of God. So first the Spirit opens our eyes to see the grace of God. That's what happens if 3,000 people come and they get saved, right? But then as the text moves on in the entire book of Acts as you read it, our eyes are opened by the Spirit to see the grace of God, but then we live in the empowerment and enjoyment as children of God. So before the Spirit came, Jesus prophesied this. And Jesus said, here's what the Spirit's job and role is going to be. Here is what he is going to do. And he he gave it to us in John chapter 14. And what Jesus said is, he's going to take everything that I taught you, 
And he's going to bring it to remembrance. That doesn't just mean intellectually remembering a detail and a fact. It means he's going to take the reality of what I speak to you about my gospel, about who I am and what I've come to do, and I'm going to make it a fiery reality in your life. I'm going to bring it to your remembrance. You're going to actually do something with it. You're going to actually live in light of it. This is what the Spirit has come to do. This is what Jesus said. It's going to be a not just an intellectual Jesus that we kind of understand and then we give him a solid 45 minutes on a Sunday, but a fiery reality in our life that changes our life, that we live in enjoyment as a result of it. We live to his glory as a result of it. So the Holy Spirit's work here at Pentecost, it's the presence and the presence of the Spirit today. It's God's grace coming and enabling his children to feel the Father's arms so that we can know that by grace and faith we are united to Christ we have God's delight. We are God's children. God has gone to infinite lengths to save you, to draw you to himself. You see, if at our core, in the depths of our being, we know that we have God's love, we know that we have his validation, our hearts are liberated, of course, from chasing the many gods and the many messiahs in search of this chronic love and validation. It's the Spirit's work that does that. It's the power of the Spirit that renews us in that way. When the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, looked back on Pentecost and really the work of the the Spirit in our lives, he answers the question that they're asking here in verse 12. What does this mean? In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul says, it's by the Spirit you cry out, Abba, Father. It's because of the Spirit that we have family language. It's because of the Spirit that you know at your core that you're a child of God, that Christ was enough. That everything that he did at the cross, everything that God is, requires from you, he's provided for you. He's a God of holiness, so he provided holiness. And now that spirit comes, and it makes that a fiery reality in our life. So that unlike what we would naturally want, we actually begin to be people who desire holiness. The desire to live to the glory of God. Desire to forsake our sin and live to the glory of our Savior. That's the implications of what this is. That's the coming of the spirit that fills the church. And and then as the Apostle Paul looks back on it, it goes, that's why we can say we're God's kids. It's a fiery reality in our life. You know, think of it um, this way. We dismissed the service today. We're standing around talking, having coffee. Kids are running around like they always do. They're throwing balls. One of your kids, you know, bonks their head. They fall down and they bonk their big round cabeza. And um, when that happens... You say, oh my goodness, and you go over and you pick up your child and you hug him and you kiss him. And you... Now, when the, child was on, when the child was running around, they were your child. Legally and objectively, they were your child. When the child bonked their head, they were your child. Legally and objectively, they were your child. But when you wrapped your arms around them, beyond just knowing they were your child legally and objectively, they felt and experienced how true and real it was to be your child. They were experiencing something in a deep and a beautiful way, in that moment of pain, that brought comfort to them. You see, that's Abba Father. We know the details of the resurrection. We get it intellectually. We can wrap our minds around justification. And I talk about that and teach on, on that a lot, regularly. We can grapple with that and get it. But it's the Holy Spirit who comes and enables you to be able to relate to God in, 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 a, in a childlike and a joyous way in the, in the moments of trial and tragedy 
That's why the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches the way that he wrote, as they were going through what they were going through. You don't read the New Testament and have the Apostle Paul go, I got your prayer lists. I'm praying through your lists. He never does that. And it's not because God doesn't care about the details of our life. It's because the Apostle Paul keeps going back to the, at the core of what the church really needs is the fiery reality of the Holy Spirit so that what it is we are facing, we are, not, we are, able, to, we are able to go through that relating to our Father, feeling his arms. The, the work of Christ is objective. The work of the Spirit, it's subjective. It's something that, it's something that day-to-day we can enjoy and experience. And so the Holy Spirit has come to make that uh, a, a true and a real and a powerful reality. You know, um, you think of it this way. You know, uh, you've got these guys who are being super generous with their wealth. Like Bill Gates is giving away billions. His goal, you know, give away billions of dollars. Maybe Bill Gates' net worth at one point was $90 billion. I don't know what it is now because he's trying to give it away. Okay, but, and, and you and I all have needs in our life. But hey, $90 billion could probably be pretty helpful, you know. But here's the thing. We have no access. We have no access because we have, connect, we have no connection because we have no relationship. So it does not matter the wealth of his resource. We have no access to it. Pentecost is the Holy Spirit coming, making the truth of the, of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus a fire reality in our life so that we now have access by the Holy Spirit to the unfathomable wealth and resource of our God and Father who cares for you, loves you, who is lovingly walking with you through your life and the things that pertain to you. You now have access to that comfort, that strength, that wisdom, that guidance. These are the implications of the power of Pentecost for us even today as the church. And it changed the landscape uh, of the church globally. And it's so important that Jesus actually, before he said, you remember Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. First he said, go. But then he said, don't go until the spirit comes. So what could possibly be so powerful that Jesus would say, don't go until this happens? It's the empowering presence of the Spirit in the, lives of, in the life of his church. That Jesus isn't an intellectual exercise. He's a fire reality in our life. And we live in light of, and we live in light of that. Here's the, here's the third thing. So the first, uh, just by way of review really quickly, the first thing it means is that the answer for the brokenness of humanity is not within us, but beyond us. The second thing is that the Spirit opens our eyes to see the grace of God, but then live in the empowerment and enjoyment as a child of God. And the third thing here that we can glean from this text is that the Spirit opens our hearts to believe the gospel, but then compels us to live our lives driven by the gospel. And I'm using that language, driven by the gospel, uh, intentionally. Uh, there's a great theologian, Michael Horton, has wrote, written a book called The Gospel-Driven Life. And that's the impact of, of the Spirit and uh, the result of what the Spirit does in our life. So the Spirit opens our heart to believe the gospel. You see the thousands coming to, coming to faith, thousands of them coming to faith that day. But then it's, when you look at what they did, now their lives are driven by this. It's actually, the, it's, like a, it's like a center of gravity that, that just keeps drawing the church into the gospel. That's the power and the work of of, uh, of the Spirit. So what did this Spirit-filled, um, gospel-driven life look like at Pentecost? What happened when the Spirit filled them? And what did it look like? Here's what it looked like. It looked like they were drunk. Okay, so they people wow, where's the sermon going from here? I didn't expect. That's what it looked like. And it's important that we grapple with this glorious metaphor of being drunk 
Because there's something we need to learn. Because Paul actually revisits it. It's not like a one-off. It's not like, it's not like Luke wrote this and then Paul was like, let's not use that metaphor. No, because in Ephesians 5, Paul, Paul brings it back. Hey, don't be drunk with the wine. Be filled, you know, don't be filled, drunk and filled with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Paul brings it back in Ephesians 5. So let's look at this. Why is this so significant? Okay. Now, it's a detail worth exploring because they, they say that they're drunk. It's 9 o'clock in the morning for those of you who... Uh, um, want the translation of what the third hour means. Peter's like, they're not drunk. It's nine in the morning, guys. It's way too early like that. Normally, we don't get drunk till 1130. Relax. We're fishermen. We're not animals. Okay, so anyway, so, so anyways, Peter starts his sermon. Read the sermon. I mean, I read it to you. I read the whole sermon. I did that on purpose. It's important we get the whole sermon because the resurrection dominated the New Testament conversation, and it needs to dominate our conversation. So anyways, Peter starts out, we're not drunk. Like, that's how the sermon starts. Um, but there's a reason for that. You know, alcohol, alcohol is, is a depressant. And it's, uh, it affects the neurotransmitters in our brain. And it gives us a relaxed feeling. And it also does something to our inhibitions. It pushes those babies off to the side. And you see, the spirit-filled life, the power and the work of the spirit, which is why Paul brings that metaphor back in Ephesians 5. He's like, you need see the, the believer that is mesmerized by the grace of Christ. The believer who is blown away by this thing we say when we say Christ alone. The believer that is actually reveling in the gospel. Their inhibitions about their love and, 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 and their passion for Jesus, those inhibitions are put to the side. It doesn't mean we're loud and obnoxious people. They weren't loud and obnoxious. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people were, were being added to the church daily. You read the New Testament and you find the Apostle Paul continually adjusting his strategies on how to thoughtfully speak to who he's talking to. Oh, I'm on Mars Hill. I'm talking this way. Oh, I'm over here with this people group. I'm talking this way. That's where we get the phrase from, when in Rome. I mean, Paul literally did that. That's 1 Corinthians 9. He's like being very thoughtful and careful about who he's sitting in front of. But his inhibitions, there's no inhibit. He's got a conviction about the glorious truth of the gospel. Because if, I mean, think about it. You're sitting down next to somebody and you're like, if you have better news for me than eternal life, do tell. There's no inhibition. It's like they're drunk. There's a conviction that is there about the goodness of the gospel that literally um, uh, just exudes from the church. It exudes from us. The Holy Spirit makes us witnesses of the love that defeated death. It doesn't make us obnoxious or weird, um, these sorts of things, because you find the, the, the apostles were incredibly thoughtful and wise in the way that they engaged uh, those outside the church. When you, when you look at the list of countries there in verses 7 to 11, you've got this list of countries that is represented, and what the importance of that is that the Holy Spirit did not come to create a big homogenous Christian culture. You actually see the opposite of what God's desire is. Christianity is the most diverse religion on the planet because the spirit of Christ applies the grace of Christ in the hearts of every culture, renewing and revitalizing how believers relate within their specific cultures. And so the outpouring of the spirit at Pentecost, it shows us very clearly what God wants. Not one kind of people, all kinds of people. And that should give you boldness in your witness. So that as we're sharing the gospel with family or friends or those, we can't sit down in judgment and be like, is this the kind of person that would believe this? Is this the kind of person that would want to carve time out of their life and make worship 
on Sundays a priority? I mean, would they really do? We don't get to decide what kind of a person we think. Pentecost says God's not looking for one kind of person. The Spirit was poured out on all flesh. And God is able to save, mighty to save, all kinds of people. And so we want to embrace that here uh, as a church, as a community here, as we grow in our diversity as a community of believers here at church. And then in verse 11, the message that went out at Pentecost was the glorious works of Christ. They said, why are we hearing in our own language the, works, the marvelous works of God? And the gospel went out, and what they were hearing was, regardless of your class, regardless of your culture, life, Christ's life, and desire, uh, life, uh, life, death, and resurrection means God's grace stretches further than your sin. That was the message. Regardless of your class, regardless of your culture, Christ's resurrection and ascension means that death could not hold Jesus, and if you trust him, death will not hold you. That was the message. And it's such good news. And so the presence of the Holy Spirit comes and rests like this fire on the believers. And I'm going to close with this. Fire, this great imagery, the image that you get at, the, at, the, at Pentecost. Fire consumes and it refines and it illuminates. And the Holy Spirit comes like fire in our lives to consume the love that we have for our sin. The Holy Spirit comes like fire in our lives to refine us so that we will love our Savior. It, he gives us new loves. And the Holy Spirit comes and he illuminates our lives. The wise guidance of God's word. The wise guidance of how it is that we are uh, to love and to live and to engage. And when you look at how this gospel-driven life looked in the early church, as the Holy Spirit came and consumed their love for their sin and refined a love for their Savior and illuminated the, the wise guidance of God's word as the, the way for their path. As you begin to look at how that looked, you see in verses 44 to 46, it looked like generosity. It looked like simplicity. It looked like worship being a priority. It looked like they were happily ordinary. The text actually goes on to say they had favor with all people. How do they have favor with all people? Not because they adopted the views of all, all people, but because they were able to love all people. You know, millennia earlier when God wanted to save people in grace, he set a bush on fire to catch Moses' attention. Well, here at Pentecost and still today, he sets his church on fire to catch the world's attention. May the Holy Spirit melt our hearts by this message of grace so we can be confident, humble messengers of this grace. Amen.